This is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and we're running down some of the top stories of the week. Don't forget to check out the Daily Dive Monday through Friday for more news without the noise. One of the interesting stories we talked about earlier this week was how easy it is for a hacker to get into your webcams and see you in your most vulnerable times at home or just when you're not paying attention. We spoke to Joanna Stern from the Wall Street Journal. She asked a certified ethical hacker to get into her webcams, and what she found was pretty interesting. The guy was even able to hack a baby monitor and spy on her child. They made a great video for the Wall Street Journal. Let's play a clip of it right now, and it kind of sets up the whole interview. I asked Alexander Hyde, the chief research officer at Security Scorecard, and a certified ethical hacker to break into my webcams to see just how vulnerable I was. With some deliberate negligence on my part, he got into my Windows 10 laptop's webcam, and from there, a connected baby monitor on my home Wi-Fi network. He also eventually cracked my MacBook Air, too, although both operating systems were initially able to thwart the hacker. Why in the world would I ask someone to spy on me? Honest answer, because I've been seeing lots of these webcam covers, and I wanted to know if they were really needed. We've put cameras everywhere, so how secure are they? And what can we be doing to better protect our literal privacy? I see those webcam covers all over the place, and I always ask somebody why they're using it. Let's jump into the interview with Joanna. She has some tips for us on how to protect ourselves and the biggest realization that we're often our own worst enemies. He definitely figured out how to watch me with my approval, with my consent. He watched me in my home. He watched through a baby monitor, so he watched my son as well. But I really did this all to see, one, what the likelihood of someone wanting to break into your webcam is, and then two, how easy is it? And then there's a third part of that too, which is what can we do to protect ourselves if this is a genuine threat and someone may really want to watch you through your webcam. I love the quote that you had in there. When a hacker sent me a photo of my son after breaking into the baby monitor on my Wi-Fi, my thought was, I'm an idiot. And with a lot of what yep. this uh, is going on here, it is our own fault. We're like our own worst enemies when it comes to this. A hundred percent. And that's really what I got to at the bottom of this is it's human vulnerability versus device or network vulnerability that seem to be the main way that hackers can get to us now. And that really is because so many of the protections in the operating systems and in our phones and in the software has become so good that the hackers tried to entice you through phishing, spear phishing, which is a method of just posing as somebody you may know in an email. In the case of this hacker, he devised a pretty smart plan, right? He saw that I had posted on Twitter a couple of weeks ago that I was looking for a video producer. And he said, well, if I was a hacker, I would just use that information and say, she's looking for a video producer. You asked for two files in this job posting, or you asked for two pieces of collateral. You asked for a resume and you asked for a video reel. And so those are my two ends. He sent two different documents, depending on what kind of computer I was on. He sent a document and then he sent a link to another file. And so presumably that would be the video file where I click this video and hope to watch it, but really it would be a piece of malware downloading to my computer. And the good news is, is that he was, well, two pieces of good news. One, he was using very basic hacking tools, off-the-shelf hacking tools that white hack hackers use to test vulnerabilities of devices and networks and companies, etc. So he wasn't using very advanced technology here to do this. But the good news is, is that he sent these things and the barriers both built into the Mac OS, built into Windows OS, 
alerted me, right? They alerted me that this was a virus or something shady here was going on. I also knew I was being hacked. And what I sort of realized along the way was, if someone doesn't know this, these could be things that people would intentionally disable or just think as everyday occurrences. I think you mentioned a few times in the article of just how some of these pop-ups are annoying or they're an inconvenience when we're actually trying to get something done. Maybe we want to download a program, an open source program, something like that. And we do have to disable some certain things along the way. I know I've done that before and then re-enable them after, thankfully. Sometimes they are to that point of annoyance where you're like, okay, whatever, whatever, click it, click it, whatever you need to click to get through to the end, you're going to do it. And if you're not paying attention close enough, you might open yourself up to these vulnerabilities. One thing that was also like really enlightening to me was just how important some of the stuff we take for granted is. I mean, we've all heard how important passwords are, but it really for me wasn't until the hacker, Alexander Hyde, who worked with me on this project, he was like, I can't get into your Nest camera. The only way I could get into your Nest camera is to know your passwords here. You know, I really wanted to try the Nest camera because it's the most popular connected Wi-Fi camera and there's been lots of talk right now about the security of it. So he said to me, I would need to know your unique password and username for that. And he said, well, I guess I could key log you, right? I could install something on your computer and track all your passwords and eventually get it. He's like, well, I'm not going to do that. But I could also just go into this database of publicly available username and passwords that have come from the numerous breaches over the last number of years, everything from the Yahoo breach to the LinkedIn breach. And those end up on the internet in, in a public space where hackers can get to them or any security security expert can get to them. So he just typed in my email and up came this password that I used to use maybe three or four years back. And, you know, I was like, oh, wow, like just seeing that on his computer screen made me realize, like, have I been as secure as I need to be with my <laughs> right. passwords? I use a password manager. I always try to remember to use a different password every time. But like, oh, maybe that old account that I slipped there. It really enforced in me, like, how important these things that we do every day are to protecting I mean, not only our face, but all of our digital information. The other thing you mentioned is obviously installing all of those security and uh, operating system updates for your phone, laptops, routers, even your thermostats, you know, anything that connects to the Internet, yeah. because those are the security updates that are going to be helping you. Tell us the bottom line. Watch what you're doing on the Internet. Be wary of everything. And when your computer is telling you this could be a problem, this could be a virus, you should probably trust it. Yes to all of those things. Uh, my Again, uh, passwords are important. I, fi I got my editor to let me leave that in all caps because I just it feels like something we always hear. I'm like, we're beat over the head with it. But like when you see that that password is out there, they can get access to so many things if you're not safe about that, about keeping that password. You guys made a great video for the Wall Street Journal, so we'll link to that also so everybody can get a look and see pictures of your <laughs> webcam being hacked. Joanna Stern, personal tech reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah. Hopefully you're not looking at me through my webcam right now. <laughs> this past week was Valentine's Day, so we talked a little bit about love. We focused on the gamification of dating. It's all around us. There's viral matchmaker shows to find love. There's apps that we use to endlessly swipe on to find dates. But this technology might not actually be helping us. It might be making it harder to meet the one. We spoke to Jesse Lee. She's a reporter for Axios. 
and we talked about how these apps are the new norm in dating and how it affects us. The big picture is that the gamification of dating has become this global phenomenon. So it's not just in the U.S., it's in China, it's in South Africa, it's in Australia, it's in England, and so on. And when I was exploring the gamification of dating, I specifically looked um, at these two facets of society where dating is becoming gamified. So first in pop culture through reality dating shows, like you mentioned, different matchmaker shows like The Bachelor in the U.S. And then second, I explored the gamification of dating in tech and social media through dating apps. And so like you said, apps are definitely the new norm in dating. But the catch is that these endless choices on these dating apps can actually be overwhelming and might make it even more difficult for us to meet the one. With regards to the TV shows and uh, you know things mm-hmm. like The Bachelor and whatnot, people love to watch those things. There's high drama, high competitiveness. It is a huge, huge game. And then with regards to the apps, as you said, I just know that the swiping thing has become so ingrained in all sorts of other apps now. I mean, YouTube is starting a swiping feature so you can swipe videos so you can stay there forever watching videos. You know, that's just how these things have evolved now. Millennials spend 10 hours a week on dating apps. And I think a lot of that can be attributed to the gamified nature. First of all, you know, the format is like a game where you essentially swipe yes or no on people's profiles. And so there is this psychological motivation to make a match, actually, because it sends these pleasurable signals to your brain. One professor actually told us that it's kind of like a drug. You can get this release over and over. And then there's also the design of the app where you have an endless number of options and that makes people want to continue swiping. There was a survey from Match where, you know, one and six singles that they actually feel addicted to the process of looking for a date. And there are also psychologists who have compared these apps to slot machines because all of these different gamified elements actually make us even more fixated on these apps. <laughs> One of the other problems with all of this uh, part of the game is to make yourself as desirable as possible. So this is the whole thing of making sure your profile is top-notch, great pictures, the whole nine, great taglines and and profiles, wording and everything. But some of this stuff is also counterintuitive. Once you maybe you make a match, then you meet somebody, your hopes and expectations are so high, and then it could be very awkward when that other person doesn't meet those expectations. You build somebody up in your mind, and what if they're not that person in real life? One sociologist we spoke to actually said that using these dating apps and dating today has actually become a form of work. It's not just fun. It's not just a game anymore because you have so much pressure to present this version of yourself that is as desirable as possible. And so obviously, like you mentioned, this can lead to unmet expectations. And there are a lot of ways that people are trying to grapple with that. One of the most common ways, of course, is just asking your friends to help you add or look at your profile, sending screenshots of your different matches and getting your friends to help you fashion responses. But there's also this whole industry of services that has popped up that's trying to address that. And it's this industry of dating coaches, essentially. And I spoke to a lot of dating coaches and a lot of them are essentially 24-7 coaches around the world who will help you style your profile and will even go as far as helping you to craft sentence by sentence what you might say to another person that you match with. And I think there is this growing need for these kinds of dating coaches because people feel so uncertain and feel so lost in this world of dating apps that they actually need to seek outside counsel to help them with their dating profiles. There was an interesting notion uh, from somebody that you spoke to for Match.com, Helen Fisher, who's their chief Mm -hmm. scientific advisor, said there's this whole thing of fast sex and slow love where because of the way the online dating culture has changed everything, people are hesitant to really make those commitments. Instead, they'll have that one night stand. A lot of them will 
have sex with somebody before their quote unquote actual first date. There's this whole thing of, hey, we're hanging out. Now we're friends with benefits. Then we're going to have our first date. It's really interesting, Helen Fisher's idea of fast sex, slow love. And yeah, she she definitely talks about how it's basically this phenomenon among millennial singles where they're more likely to go through these motions that are traditionally associated with a relationship before even actually defining the relationship. So like you said, they'll go on dates, have sex, all of that, and they won't even define whether they're a couple or, you know, once they're in a relationship, they'll move in together and do all these things together, but they won't even discuss marriage. But an interesting tidbit of analysis from her is she said that some people might view this as reckless behavior among millennials, but she actually sees this as caution. She kind of sees this as in this increasingly gamified sphere of dating, people are on their toes more than ever. And it causes this desire in millennials to want for everything to be right, to fall in the right place before they tie the knot. And so it's actually, it it could be seen as a good thing that millennials are more cautious about how they date more than ever. Jesse Lee, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Man, I feel so lucky to have missed this whole online dating thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know you as well, Miranda, missed this whole boat. How did you meet your husband? Uh, My husband and I were both lifeguards at a water park, and he actually had a car crash that made the city newspaper. Oh, wow. So he lost his license for a little while, and he had called my best friend to get a ride from her, and she recommended me because he and I had the same schedule. I even made my brother come with me just in case he was like, a raper. He wasn't, but just in case. Well, that's, that's good to know. Uh, I met my wife. Uh, she used to have these in our friend group, these parties of legend. They were like parties out of a movie. Wow. And uh, we had some mutual friends and they invited me and I went there and I remember being in the backyard. She was inside by the kitchen and I was like, I'm going to go talk to that girl and make her a drink. <laughs> so that's what I did. I walked in. I was like, hey, you know, can I make you a drink, classy lady? And oh my made God. her a drink. And we started talking over that. And the rest is history. I, Do you I still think, make her drinks? Of course. I think shortly after that, uh, it was maybe two days had gone by. And then we all went to the movies together. And literally, we have never been apart more for more than a few days after that. It was the same story. I took him to work and I brought him home. And June 25th, 2003, here we are. There you go. Thank you, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. To the surprise of many, Amazon canceled its plans to build its HQ2 in Long Island City, New York. This comes after a whole year of them trying to find a place to host their new campus It was seen as a big victory by local lawmakers and housing activists. They had a big problem with the $3 billion in tax incentives that Amazon was going to get. On the other hand, there was land developers and uh, and apartment brokers that were angry at the missed opportunity and lost economic activity. If you had a deal in the process, you are scrambling right now. My producer Miranda joins us for why Amazon is backing out now. Amazon has decided to cancel their plans in response to the public outrage and outcry from the people who have lived in this borough of Long Island City, part of Queens, because there are concerns about government kickbacks. There were concerns about skyrocketing rents and land values. People were concerned that they were going to get priced out of the neighborhoods they've been living in for 50 years. And that's a very real concern. Amazon, to their part, said that they're not going to reopen their HQ to search. So wherever you're living, don't stress if Amazon is going to come live there too. They're not. They're going to expand where they already exist. So the 25,000 jobs slated for New York City are going to be relocated to other parts of the HQ too. So it's like DC, 
Nashville, and then other parts of New York City. Yeah, and that was a huge process in and of itself. They spent over a year looking for candidates to host the new HQ2. That's when they decided they were going to split it between two cities. And then also in Nashville, they were going to open some other operations hub there. Nobody knows exactly what the fate of those 25,000 jobs are going to be or that $2.5 billion in investment. Obviously, it's going to be spread about, but it's not going to be as much of an impact in one location as it was before. They also said that, you know, they love New York, but they needed a place that required positive collaborative relationships with state and local elected officials who will be supportive over the long term. And they just were not getting that. Governor Andrew Cuomo and Mayor Bill de Blasio helped usher in all this stuff, assuming they kind of cleared the way without the need for a lot of local input. And that's really what the big sticking point was. They got mad that they got skirted over it and had to give all sorts of concessions. Yeah. And, you know, it's the smaller neighborhood representatives, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tweeting out, anything is possible. Today was the day a group of dedicated everyday New Yorkers and their neighbors defeated Amazon's corporate greed. But to their part, the brokers are furious because they're saying we want the Bezoses. You want the Carnegie's and the Rockefellers. And if they're going to get pushback like this, we're going to stop bringing big business to New York City. Yeah, a lot of the land developers and the brokers, as you're saying, they're just in the lurch now. You know, if you had a deal that was in the process, now you're thrown into chaos. And they're even saying that, you know, it would have been great to transform Long Island City into some type of 24-7 district with, you know, shops, the whole nine, you know, housing and all the stuff that comes with it. And now that it's just going to remain a place for Manhattan commuters to sleep, you know, it's not going to become anything there. It's a bedroom community. I have close friends who just moved away from there. And it is, it's like a small town. That's a six minute subway ride from Midtown. And, and, you know, a lot of people are are pissed at the fact that they were going to get so much in tax incentives. Amazon for the second year in a row will pay zero in federal income taxes. You know, when people hear that kind of stuff, the, the huge mega corporations, you get angry at the fact that they don't have to pay taxes. And then as we're all doing our income taxes right now, you know, a lot of people <laughs> are getting screwed. So it's an interesting thing to kind of square away. But $3 billion in tax incentives, who's to say how much real economic benefit they would have brought just with the amount of people, with the amount of development, it seems to me that it would have been more than that. Ultimately, an economic boom. But Amazon has also faced a lot of criticism in the fact that they're very anti-union and labor activists, especially in New York City, have been trying to stage protests since the announcement was made in November saying Amazon will have to unionize if they want to be in New York City. Increasingly, people are ordering things online. Amazon, obviously, at the forefront of a lot of that stuff. I don't think it'll hamper their ability to send out deliveries, but where business centers are going to be created, they're all missing out there now. And, uh, you know, it also sends a signal that, yes, the people did win and they pushed Amazon out, but also Amazon leaving just like that proves that they're not going to take anything from anybody. And if you don't want them there, hey, we'll move our business elsewhere. The uh, other cities in Virginia, Northern Virginia and in Nashville, they're not getting any pushback like this. Nothing like this. And Amazon specifically chose New York because they wanted to have a wide reach in order to cast a wide net and get the best available talent. Right. So all those New York City tech programmers are either going to have to move or or stick work, with something else. Work somewhere else. Yep. Thank you, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. All right. That's it for us this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. 
Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.